0: Hi, everyone. This is Civic Syrup. It is July 19th, episode 14, and we're here today with Sherry Jean of District 20. And uh, hi, Tenley. Tenley's here. Hi, Brandy.
1: Hi, Sherry. Thank you so much for being here. Thank Senator you. Jean, I should say, Colorado State Senator.
0: Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, if for those of you who are um, interested in You know, being a sponsor at some point of our podcast, Civic Syrup, you know, uh, Tenley and I do these as much as we possibly can. Um, We would, you know, obviously there are some costs involved to delivering you this information and would love to have your voice, your company, your business, your group heard on Civic Syrup. So give us a a call or find us on our website, civicsyrup.com or you can email us at civicsyrup at gmail.com.
1: Yeah, we look forward to hearing from you all. And, of course, you can contact us with uh, podcast guests that you would like to hear from or uh, issues that you want us to touch on.
0: Great. So we're going to go ahead and get started. So, Sherry, just give us a little bit of background. How did you – you've been in um, the seat for 16 years now, or going on 16. I was in the house for eight years.
2: Okay. Elected in 2000, so I began my term in 2011, I mean 2001, and then served for eight years in the House. Um, I was, my last four years there, I was the Speaker Pro Tem to Andrew Romanoff, who was the Speaker. Um, I then had a two-year out because the seat was not opened. Mo Keller was the state senator, and the seat wasn't open for another two years. So uh, during that time, I ended up with the primary, but I continued, you know, my campaigning during that time that I was out and then was elected um, to the Senate and started serving in um, 2011. So I have 15 years this year and I have one more to go and then I'm termed.
0: Wow, so we talked a little bit before the podcast. Do you wanna give our listeners just a a little bit of background into why you even went this route? You were busy, uh, single mother of three, running a business. How did all of this come together?
2: Well, like all the good um, people out there, the dads, the moms, the grandparents, the guardians, people like to get involved in their kids' schools. And I especially loved the policy part. I worked on the PTA, but my favorite was accountability. And then uh, was recommended to some community stuff, working with actually the police department on a, a federal grant on how in the world do we get a hold of this graffiti. It's out of control. Um, So I found that I really loved working on policy. And when Mo Keller was term limited out of the um, House, when she was then going to take Ed Perlmutter's seat, he was the state senator in this seat, um, they asked if I'd run. And I said, seriously? (laughs) Really? I was very surprised that they even knew who I was. Um, But then I, you know, really got a handle on more of the whole everyday thing. Would I be able to do it? You know, being a single mom, my youngest then at that point was 16. Um, but I had my business, which I still have today. And I needed to make sure when I commit to something, it has to be 150%. Yeah. So would I be able to do the job? Um, because it just sounded fascinating. I love issues. and I love policy. And that's how it all happened. I began campaigning and then I won. Wow. So did you have a what did your campaign team look like? You know, I have had the same amazing four to five people through this whole process. Wow. Um, It was just, at that point, you didn't pay campaign managers. They were volunteers that just really believed in what you, you know, stood for. And then you pick up a, you know, a few volunteers here and there. But I have a team of five that was just phenomenal. And they've stayed with me ever since, very unfortunately now. um, A couple years ago, we lost um, just one of the really great ones that was actually acted as my campaign manager for a lot of it. And then I had a young kid that worked for me as an intern when he was 16. Wow. And was so amazing that I brought him on as my aide the next year when he was 17. And he's just been with me ever since. And we're still, he now works in in the Capitol and he's one of the liaisons to the Department of um, the uh, Health Department and just does a fabulous job.
1: I just love these stories about young people getting involved mm-hmm. because I feel like I talk to a lot of um, adults, you know, who are voting age and, and feel like they don't even make much of a difference. And then I hear these wonderful stories about people who don't yet have the ability to vote, don't yet have, you know, a big, long resume behind them, and they don't care. They're out there, you know, mm-hmm. working, working and making their voices heard. So that's, that's really cool.
2: Yeah, that's really impressive. One of the fr- things that I have loved the most is when I get to go meet with students and kids. You know, they'll come down to the Capitol on tours or, you know, I've gone to the schools. We've been invited to schools a couple of times. And I love talking to kids because um, they're thinking is still so pure. I mean, they haven't become a hardline party person generally. And um, they've got incredibly great ideas on, you know, well, this is the problem. Okay, so how would we fix that?
1: That's so interesting and that I kids love are sort of hearing
2: from them. inherently issue-focused. Well, yeah. it's also important that they realize whether they can vote or not, their voice, number one, does matter. Number two, every single thing we do in the state affects the everyday lives of people and especially kids I said you know i get to say when you get your driver's license mm-hmm. yeah you know we say when are you going to lose the driver's license yeah. you know what are you going to pay for the insurance do you have to have insurance we're going to we're going to say whether you have to have it. so everything that we do affects and so they become very engaged and i encourage them to you know go to their school board meetings go to their council city council meetings and get educated in
1: their communities and if they can volunteer for a candidate yeah, that they absolutely. like, you know, that could be one avenue.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's really incredible, Sherry. So tell us a little bit about District 20.
2: Senate District 20, you know, they had redrawn the boundaries when, was it 2011, right after it came in. And um, it is probably the highest, what's called a competitive district. That's really good for voters, by the way because it's very competitive. That means it's a third, 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 Hmm. strong third, third, third. In my district, the voter registration is actually, um, and I think it's changed a little bit, but when I was running, it was the highest percentage of Republicans and then unaffiliates and then Democrats. Wow. And so um, the reason I say it's good for voters is because it's not slanted one way or the other. And I happen to always been one of those that believe that's good for for people, mm-hmm. because you really have to run the gamut. You 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 hear from people all across the, you know the 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 um, aisle of you know whether they're Republicans or unaffiliates or, you know Green Party Libertarians, uh, Democrats.
0: You hear all of it. Yeah. So to, uh, you know just. We talked about this before the podcast, but just how you are truly the voice of your district. So, how I'm assuming that you have to make some decisions occasionally that are not very popular amongst folks in your district. I mean, as every district rolls, but um, how do you how do you balance all of that? Like, how do you balance a voice? Do you find that most of people in your district share the same voice, but maybe just have like have voted Democrat, Republican? their whole life. Like what, what does that look like?
2: So I'll tell you up until the last election, you would notice that people many, much of the time would vote. Well, by dang, it's the party. Yeah. So if they were Republican, it was Republican. If it was Democrat, my district has always been able, I've been able to do kind of a crossover because I am moderate and mm-hmm. I'm very proud of that. And I do represent my district. Um, I think the key thing is I walked every single year even when I did not have an opponent, I walked every single year because that is who I'm representing. Yeah. If I don't talk to them at the doors, how in the world do I know what they're thinking?
1: For our listeners who may not know what you mean by walking, oh, it knocking means on, knocking doors. on yeah. doors yourself. Going out into
2: the public, holding yeah. town hall meetings, actually listening to people in my district, and that is what has gotten me reelected in my district every year. Um, especially since I came to the Senate. Now, 2014 was a really, really tough year. And this is the interesting part, and I'm, I'm really happy to see it, I've got to tell you. Um, it wasn't so much about party anymore. It was about I'm over all of them. Yeah. Tell me what you stand for, and tell me what you believe, and tell me what your policies are, because I'm really over all the parties. And um, I fit that district really well. Mm -hmm. because I am moderate. Um, I was born and raised in Sterling and then moved to Ridge when I was 13. Um, But I think it gave me a whole great perspective because people are over, well, I'm going to vote this way because it's this party or this way because it's this party. You know what? People want to know what you're going to do for them in their life to make their life better. I want to know how I'm going to afford to help my kid go to college. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, the bread and butter things that they really care about. And both sides have gone to, they'll still hold on to their fringes, you know, being pro-life, pro-choice. Um, you know, just all of the things that that each party has always built their platform on. Yeah. And I tell my side, never, ever, ever, ever do we want to back up on the civil rights. We have fought for years to get the civil rights uh, movements through that we have and and the equality of people and making sure everybody has a right to vote and all of those things but people are with us on that yeah <laughs> they're already
0: with us on that. you don't have to fight them on that no issue.
2: yeah what are you gonna do for my everyday life what are you gonna do for the roads that are torn up you know what are you gonna do to help us get to college what are you gonna do for the everyday things that we have to face that's what people want to know
1: mm-hmm.
0: so what do you think are some of the the Bigger issues in District Twenty. You mentioned like, how are we going to send our kids to college? Infrastructure. Um, I know that you one of a few of your um, platforms is um, equal treatment to folks with disabilities, veterans. Like what? What are some of the key issues?
2: Well, I think across the state, um, the transportation issue is just huge and infrastructure. Yeah, because Colorado has fallen way behind, um, and I believe that. First of all, I believe that nothing should be put in the Constitution. I won't vote almost no on every single thing that ever comes before. I don't care what it sounds like. 10, 20 years down the road, it's going to bite you. Yeah. Because the world changes. And all of a sudden now you've got a policy. Oh, that isn't working so well anymore. But it's in the Constitution and we can't touch it downtown. The citizens have to run a whole other initiative to make any changes to that. Um, I talk to a lot of people, you know, take Tabor for example. Okay, there's great parts of Tabor. Okay, we should be able to keep those. Mm -hmm. Um, There's parts that really don't work well for the state. We should be able to go in and tweak uh, tweak those, but we can't touch it. You know, having somebody to have to to go to the people and vote whether they want their taxes raised, that's fine. Everybody agrees with that. But um, there's parts that don't. there's just things that you, that's not where you do good policy. Yeah. The world changes.
0: Yeah. And you have to be able to get a hold of it. And, and adapt easily, not have to take a whole nother effort to make, to accomplish just getting that um, reworded or reworked out of, in the Constitution.
2: Well, and the whole thing is people say, well, just fix it, run something downtown. Well, you know what? First of all, you have to get two thirds of the Senate and two thirds of the House to get something changed in the Constitution, to get a referendum to the ballot. That is really hard to do. Yeah. You know, we did it with Ref C, uh, where it it gave us a timeout on the the Tabor um, uh, formula. Just this last year, right? No. was C was, oh my gosh, 2000, oh gosh, seven? Okay. Six, seven, somewhere in there. Okay. Um, It gave us a timeout so that the money that we collected above the you know, the, the plateau, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, we could actually keep that and use it instead of having to give it back to the, to the voters. You know, maybe that's something that we look at because you have to ask their permission to do that. Yeah. So we had to put something on the ballot, and it was bipartisan. That's the great part. And so maybe it's time to look at that on transportation. Will you trust us? Because, you know, we've lost a lot of their trust, and yeah. I get that, and I understand why. Um, maybe we ask them, can we use this money for however many years just for infrastructure and transportation? Mm-hmm. Um, and you get the permission to do that, but you know, they don't trust politicians a whole lot these days and I completely
0: understand why. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're, um, you know, some of the, I gave you a few notes before this, before this podcast, do you want to just talk briefly about some of the things, like over the 16 years, some of the big accomplishments, the big wins that you felt like were successful for you, for you and your district and the state of Colorado?
2: Well, one of the issues I'm working on right now that is so important to me and so many people is around the world of addiction. Mm -hmm. And um, when you look at the opioid prescription drug and heroin addictions and alcohol addictions, you know, I tell people every single person knows someone. They may just not realize that they know them yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It is so, so prevalent. It is the worst thing that I have ever seen as an epidemic throughout the country and certainly Colorado. And in Colorado, um, it was in 2013, I believe, that we realized we were like second or third of the highest in the, in, the addictions, nations, in the nation,
1: yeah. wow. by state, yeah. Hmm.
2: Huh. And the governor formed um, what we call the consortium and um, said, we have got to get a handle on this. And they've done some, some great things. It's the Colorado Consortium on Prescription um, Drug Prevention, and uh, they've done amazing things. You know, get some of these drugs out of your medicine cabinet. Yeah. Get them off of your nightstand, because guess what? of the people that become addicted to the opioids and the prescription drugs get them from friends or family. Yeah. They do not get them from a doctor. Uh Hmm. They get them from friends or family.
1: And it's not the easiest thing, right? You're not supposed to just flush them down the toilet into the water system. There's a special way to get rid of them. So it is this kind of it's a fine edge, right, where you want people to do it, but you really want them to do it right. And so yeah. they say,
2: so what can government do about that? Well, having formed this consortium, one of the things that they've done is they have gone out in the communities and met with the pharmacies, the police departments, the fire departments, um, any major community you know, um, thing like that where people can take their prescription drugs now, their used prescription, the ones unused, and they have drop boxes, really, Huh. so that they're disposed of right. Wow, um, I didn't you, know
0: that.
1: Now, when I tried to do that, I think I was uh, there was confusion about, like, I was told there would be a charge for giving my prescriptions back, and I thought that's interesting. That's I've not heard that interesting. Um, so I feel like that's maybe kind of a healthcare oversight thing, where, um, you know. And it, it. it, I'm trying to think of the other thing that happened, though. I mean, I ended up not paying to return them because I picked up a pamphlet that said, "Well, here's how you can dispose of them safely at home," and I followed those instructions. So, it's it's confusing. It's interesting to hear. I have not heard that, but it's something
2: I want to look into. Yeah. Because
1: we want them to take them, all of them. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Then the other piece to that is we're trying really hard to do education around pain management. And, you know, working with the doctors who've been wonderful to work with on, do you really need to give them 30-day supply? Do you need to give them at all? Right. Could you give them a three-day supply? Um, And that's really hard for docs to do because they've been, for all of their years of training, it's
0: you make the patient comfortable. Yeah. You know, and it's getting worse, right? People have these Mm -hmm. expectations that Mm -hmm. I'm going to have this huge procedure and I don't want to feel it. That's right. I don't want to feel it afterwards Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, medicine's turning into big business too. So it's all about how do we make these patients happy? And they hire teams of of people to evaluate your experience. I get surveys, calls just from taking my boys in for a checkup that are like, how was your experience? And I was like, Um, It was good. It was just fine. Really, you just pay somebody to do this all day. But I think that there's there's so many layers to this problem, and it's hitting each one and with a different message. Exactly right. And I think the other thing
2: that government can do is just education. You know, you don't have to mandate all the. You don't have to mandate everything. It's a lot of times mandates really don't work anyway. Um, But. just making it so people are aware that is really not a good thing to take. Getting doctors to um, stop over-prescribing. Right now, we have a PDMP system. It's the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. It's national.
0: Mm-hmm. It
2: was passed, I believe, in 2007, eight, somewhere in there, nationally, where the doctors can go in and see, hmm, is this person doctor shopping? Mm, you know, yeah. they, maybe, is there potential that there's an issue here? Sadly, in Colorado, only 28% of the doctors are using that. Oh, we need to flip that. And so, what is the problem we need to fix? Is it too cumbersome? Um, is it not easy to manipulate? Because, you know, they're already under a whole lot of pressure and stress from the insurance companies to say, no, nope, you've got 15 minutes with that patient. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. really, really making it hard on doctors. Yeah. And that's some place where I think that, uh, come on. Let a doctor be a doctor, let a teacher be a teacher. Stop over-regulating that piece. But um, making it so that it's very quick and easy for them to get in and see. The other sad thing I've found through all of my work on the opioid thing so far this last year was that we now have added veterinarians to the PDMP. Veterinarians, you say? What's PDMP? The Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. Oh, They can go in and look. They're not gonna go in and look. Just, if you take your dog or cat in, that's Mm -hmm. not, if they suspect what's happening now, people are harming their animals. They are harming their animals to get painkillers for the animal, wink, wink, that really is just for them. Oh my gosh, that's awful, I didn't even
0: realize that was. It's
2: awful, it's just.
0: Wow. You know, an
2: addict, going through withdrawal, they say that it is worse than probably facing death. It is so awful, mm-hmm. and they'll do anything. If not for this addiction, this crime probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, This animal wouldn't have been abused. This child wouldn't have been abused. There's so many things. If not for the addiction, these things would not have happened. Mm-hmm. And so it makes people do things they would
1: not normally do. So then are you, it sounds like maybe you're working on kind of a multi-pronged approach, right? Like, let's get rid of the medications when they're just sitting around the house, A, mm-hmm. right? That's like, mm-hmm. you know, or, or keep them from being prescribed unnecessarily in the first place. Yes. And then all the way down the line from people, you so preventing the addiction from, you know, there even being opportunity there to then okay how can we educate the public and how can we educate doctors and how can we get the electronic records working and um Mm -hmm. potentially i mean i don't know how you feel about this but you know treatment programs right if withdrawal is so bad it should be supervised professionally right then the the issue that you bring up is
2: one of the biggest to me we have great treatment programs one of the pieces we are now missing, which we've really been missing, is the medical detox portion. Mm-hmm. It is almost impossible to find a medical detox. And if you're going through withdrawals at the rate, I mean, at the that they height of, you know, they go from opioids and they can't afford them anymore, very to, expensive. Yeah, they to heroin, right? To heroin, then injecting, um, and alcohol. But, you know, it's just the worst thing that they, they say they would rather die. It's so painful. Um, Unless you've been medically detoxed, especially with alcohol, you actually can die from uh, withdrawals from alcohol. You won't die from withdrawals from the heroin and the opioids. It is the worst thing you've ever been through. But you can die from alcohol withdrawals. You have to be medically detoxed before a treatment plan or treatment program facility can even take you. So, wow. so <clears throat> that's, that's a, a huge, huge issue. barrier for people who huge. want the help, who it's know huge. they have a problem it's and huge. are
1: seeking help. They still can't find it. Uh-huh. So how, how do we deal with that? Well,
2: I'm really working hard on that piece. <clears throat> um, this last year, we began that discussion. Arapahoe House, who is just awesome, you know, it's one of the oldest and best treatment you know, um, centers out there, no longer will be doing medical detoxes. Those aren't the people that pay for the service. You know, They get medically detoxed, and you have a hard time getting you know, the funding for that. Um, so they just were losing so much money every single month. They had to get out of that piece. So they're really focusing on the treatment and the recovery. That's very important, treatment recovery. Yeah. Um, so now, who's gonna do the detox?
1: Nobody that knows. is
2: the question. That's what I'm going after now is, you know, that's where I believe some of this funding should go um, in the state. Yeah. And that's what I worked on hard last year was getting more funding for treatment. And the other thing that is so important to me for people to know, there's no demographics around these addictions. Yep. And the stigma has just been so, they picture, you used to say heroin addict and they in, instantly go to a street corner in, you know, on Colfax. Let me just tell you that is could not be further from true. We have grandmothers We have seniors, we have- Business people. Business people. We have all of these, the spectrum is just huge. So the stigma, you know, um, well they should just stop taking it. That's just not how the brain works. Yeah. yeah. It's very sad. It's just not not humane. So people really, I hope that they continue really learning more about it and realizing that they actually know somebody, Uh whether they realize they do or not. And it's just a horrible, horrible uh, disease. I, I, it truly is a disease. And um, helping them get help, because it costs us a lot of money when they're not getting help because they're showing up at the emergency rooms. They're in the hospitals. You know, their kidneys are failing. Their livers are failing. They're in jail. They're in jail. They're in prison. Um, a lot of them are in jail and prison for things they would not have done if not for. So you have the hardline people that just say, "Then they shouldn't have done it." Well, all right, I'll give them that. But they did, and maybe it was many of the times it was from a, a surgery, mm-hmm. and they were given these prescriptions, and the pain was still there because actually it masks the pain. It doesn't really take care of the mm-hmm. yeah. So you pain just issue. keep
0: taking it. That's right. Yeah.
2: So that's probably the biggest issue that I've been working on this last couple of years. Before that, I actually um, I'm a small business owner. And so those issues are very important to me. That we allow a, a, a business to be able to run the business, um, and not, you know, make it impossible for them to adhere to all of the policies. Small business owner doesn't have time to sit in chamber meetings if they can even afford to to join them, to find out what are all the regulations. Am I violating something? I mean, it's just it's difficult. So I watch those issues very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, juvenile stuff. Um, I worked on something for 13 years before I finally got it through. In 2005, I was able to repeal uh, with a good senator, Republican, Lynn Hefley, um, in the House uh, that they could no longer lock juveniles 14 years of age you know, to 17 in prison for the rest of their life without ever a chance of parole.
1: Thank you. Period. Thank you. There was,
2: (laughs) the thing that bothered me was, oh, egregious crimes. I will never, what they did was horrid.
1: Of course.
2: But every single situation was different, and a judge should be able to look at the whole story and all the mitigating circumstances to make a decision whether or not someone should, in fact, be there for the rest of their life. Yeah. Yeah. so we stopped that process, but they had to serve 40 years. It was the best I could do. Oh, wow. So for the all the next years, continued working on that. And finally, last year, not this last session, but the one before, I uh, worked with another Republican, Laura Woods, um, and through five Supreme Court rulings, they have flat said, yeah, that was unconstitutional. Uh-huh. You have violated their eighth amendment you know, rights. I mean, wow. you cannot do that. It was unusual, cruel and unusual. Be, yeah. um, um, punishment, punishment, punishment yeah. and you just can't do that so we were able to um, write policy that they will get another another hearing uh, doesn't mean that they're going to get out but doggone it a judge gets to look at the whole picture what have they done while they're in there some of these people have two masters degree now Wow. I mean they were 14 15 when they went in you know we have absolute science evidence that their brains have not developed Right. Sometimes you oh. wonder how, you know, but I mean, yeah. at least 25. Yeah.
0: Um, so when do they get their hearing again? Is it 18? It's in process. Or no, is it right depending now. on? It's going on okay. right now as
2: okay. they're bringing them up. Okay. Um, they're getting a, a, a resentencing hearing. Okay. And oh, maybe so they this will. this will
1: be retroactive? So it'll be, yes. yeah. I carried okay. the
2: portion that was for the 48 juveniles we had. Okay. I still call them kids, but, but they're, they're not. Yeah, they're not anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one that I followed very, very closely was Jacob Bind, and um, he was fifteen, uh-huh. and what they did to that little boy from the time he was two on was just something you and I could never speak of, and at fifteen he made a really horrible decision, and he, you know, killed his parents that is absolutely unacceptable and yes there should be a punishment. What about what they did to him for all of those years? It mm-hmm. was worse than you and I can even imagine doing to a child
1: mm-hmm. and um, and you're when you're 14 or 15, I mean does anybody know teenagers who make good decisions all the time? I mean I yeah, don't want to I don't want to belittle the gravity of the situation, no, the victims are, but I mean oh. we've got there and we all know as you said, there's science about what abuse does to mm-hmm. a child's brain. I mean it, mm-hmm. it the brain, reacts to that. So, yep. um, oh, that's that's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's so right like now those 48
2: get a resentencing hearing and a judge can make that determination. How have they done? What have they done? If they've been a problem in prison, yeah, they probably shouldn't be coming out. Yeah. But they have to go through a very intense program. It's a three year program. Um, and first they have to apply. They can't just get into this program and it's all done within the prison. They don't get mm-hmm. to come out. Yeah. Um, so we're very. I'm very very pleased about that. And um, that's great. Congratulations. And then going forward, you know, uh, how we handle those situations. Well, and that
1: really speaks to what you. I mean, that strikes me as a civil rights issue, right? I to mean, me, it was. in our in our national constitution, as you said, you know, we our nation is founded on. <laughs> criminals being treated like people, and, you know, they do have certain rights, Mm -hmm. and uh, so to me, that sounds like a civil rights issue Mm -hmm. as well, especially when you look at the criminal justice system and some of the inequities there that I think we're, you know, hearing more about and trying to work towards fixing as well, Um, and, you know, hopefully, like you say, hopefully everyone's on board with, with that, so.
0: Yeah. Is there anything else that needs to happen with that, or do you feel like that's, like, No, right now, we made sure that they had
2: plenty of time to get what does the program look like. Mm -hmm. So we have brought all the experts together, and they've been working on that now for the past year. And then in August 2018, it will go live. So people will be able to start applying. And um, the other thing I will say to that is sometimes when you're just locked away for life as a 15-year-old, well, what hope do you have? These people have done amazing things knowing that they were going to be there for the rest of their life. They've gotten degrees. They've gotten master's degrees. They have become paralegals. They have, you know, gotten uh, law, their law degrees. They have done amazing things. Not all of them. Sure. Not all of them. So it's not just let them all out. Heck no. no. But what have they done with no hope at the end of that tunnel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That will really tell what a person is, you know, inside. They rehabilitated. Um, I always say, you know, where is the forgiveness? Where is the the redemption? Are we such a society that there is absolutely nope? Oh, made a mistake? I'm sorry, and you're going to pay for it for the rest of your life? In some cases, yes, but really, we shouldn't be able to look at it.
1: Yeah, right. I, I my understanding of the you know the prison system, right? This idea of rehabilitation, the idea that. Uh, people can, you know, that hope springs eternal that there may be a future in society. And I have to tell you, the director we have now, um, Mr.
2: Ramish, is amazing. He um, is implementing programs um, and he gets kind of beat up on some of them because they've never been done in the country Uh. on rehabilitation and what kind of programs would we have. And you know what, folks, I hate to tell you, most of them aren't locked away for life. They are coming out and they are going to live in the house next door to you. Right. And you better hope they had some rehabilitation. Yeah. So you don't just let people out and say, well, good luck. So he's really worked hard on getting some things in place um, to say, we got to get these folks ready Mm -hmm. because they're coming out and they're going to be in our communities and they're going to live with us. Yeah. So he's done a great job and call you know, especially when you look at the work programs that, that we have, I'm the, the, uh, chair of the um, advisory board for the Correctional Industries Advisory Board. And the stuff they come up with is just phenomenal of work related so they can get trained. I mean it's a privilege to be in those work programs. Yeah, you have to earn your way to those work programs and show that you're really you know wanting to do that. Um, but everything from plumbing to electrical to welding to fire, j- fire jumpers, um, oh, they've gotten to use wow. some of them for the federal. So I think it's people look to Colorado mm-hmm. on the models and stuff that we do.
1: That's I love. That's another thing I love about these podcasts is I've learned that you know we have one of the the best voting some of the best voting laws in out of all the states in the nation we do um you know i'm hearing for you now that we've got pioneers here in you know uh criminal rehabilitation programs Mm -hmm. and work programs and those
2: are not partisan issues yeah yeah Yeah. that's
1: an excellent
0: these are people issues yep yeah and they affect everyone That's exactly right, one way or the other. Yeah.
1: So, what do you have kind of on your radar screen for the, for your, I guess it would be your final legislative session coming up, right? As I stated last year, my devotion
2: will be to this addiction and to the opioid and, you know, making sure that we get more treatment and, you know, what that whole picture looks like.
1: Uh, because it is such a huge problem. So we've been hearing a ton about healthcare lately, uh-huh. and I just I just want to throw that out there and see, you know, how does healthcare policy interface with this, op- you know, opioid addictions and addictions in general?
2: Well, right now we feel very fortunate that that has peace has not at first was threatened, but now is not that they he's that the na- at the national level they're putting more money into the. Um, treatment and recovery piece. Um, as far as the healthcare piece goes, I think you know, as you hear out there all over, I hear it all over um, in my district, and it's become it's not a partisan issue of yeah. who gets Again, insurance and who issue. doesn't. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, if you start looking at the Medicaid, why in the world would we ever take someone in a nursing home and jeopardize that the developmentally disabled who, through no fault of their own, have been dealt you know, a hand that that they have to deal with and their caretakers have to deal with. Um, And then there's people that just flat need to get on their feet. You know, there's people that could pay more in their little premium for the Medicaid portion. I get that, and that's fine. I have no problem with that. They could pay a little bit more for the prescription when they go get it. Um, And there's people, you know, they're working. They could do that. Mm -hmm. But... To just wipe out <laughs> would not be a really, oh I don't think that'd be a real smart right. thing. Yeah, yeah. Be a disaster. M- making
1: adjustments versus just well, blanket cuts is a, a distinction.
2: It's gonna make it really hard on states too who are already struggling with budgets. Yeah. And in Colorado, um, we really struggle. We don't have extra funding. We work within these walls and it's a matter of to pay for this, we'll take it from here.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, so for, for addictions and treatment programs where where do you see that money coming from? I mean, you mentioned earlier that there could be, you know, some more efficiencies in that, you know, we're seeing such mm-hmm. expenses from people who are addicted. Mm-hmm. So but I see that as kind of a you have to get over the hump, right? You have to find funding to deal with the problem that we already have before you start seeing the 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 financial benefits of prevention. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And so how do we do the that more you here put, in the state The of more prevention
2: dollars you put here, the less amount you'll pay down here in the right. in the systems, yes. whether it's the the Medicaid system, the the hospital systems, the prisons, jails. And so um, that's why the federal dollars are so so critical. Yeah. Without those federal dollars, we're going to be in a world of hurt. Okay. That's why so because we get a match. For every uh, dollar that we put in, I believe we get one or two dollars back in Medicaid, yeah. or uh, yeah, for Medicaid. Right. Can Medicaid be used for treatment? Um, it well, yeah. some and some not. Uh-huh. That's a real. That's a real complex. Mm-hmm. What they will pay for, what they won't. We have worked on that legislation this last year. Yeah, that they'll be able to do more. We'll okay, be able to do more. Okay, but when you're looking at behavioral health, ah. those dollars um, help the behavioral health. Okay, okay, interesting. Yeah. They, just a different classification.
0: Mm Yeah.
2: Um,
0: I'm assuming that, you know, when we're talking about the, the treatment portion of, you know, not the rehabilitation, but the actual like treatment of getting those who are addicted in a safe place where they can actually then be rehabilitated. I'm assuming that's not cheap. Um, or what does that look like? Or what kind of, um, there's some medical professionals involved, um, what exactly does that look like from a cost standpoint?
2: Well, it's I mean it is expensive. It depends upon how you go. Not everyone needs to be in a residential facility. Yeah. Where they're just there for 30 days, you know, detox a month, whatever. Yeah. Um, they have really good outpatient programs as well that work very well for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. There's some people that literally have got to go into a residential. Yeah. And yes, it is expensive. It is expensive. But it's just not a... One thing I've learned through all of the years that I've actually looked at this issue and um, worked on it, especially over this last couple, is one thing does not fix it for everyone that is addicted. Because you never know when that person's going to finally hit and say... Dear God, I can't do this anymore. I can't live this way. I'm begging for help. Yeah. You never know when that's going to hit. So you have to meet them where they are. Yeah. And you have to be able to, right this minute, have something available. Mm-hmm. You wait a week, put them on a waiting list, they're gone. They're gone. Yeah, they'll over. never come back. They have already started having withdrawals, and they're going to find whatever they can find to make those withdrawals go away.
0: And the system then failed them, that's right. right? So they're not going to come back for that same well, experience. eventually... Yeah, maybe, yes. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe.
2: But it's important that we meet them where they are. And not every single thing works for every single person. And I know that's hard for people to grasp. I know down, down at the Capitol, we sat through joint budget committee hearings where they do the first part of the budget. And, well, if this works so well, then why do we need this and this? Well, it's because this
1: doesn't work for everybody. And if you get them right this minute, this may be what they need. So this is an area, it sounds like, where you're you're seeing something in your district that's a problem. You know it's a problem and that but you're looking for solutions that are going to work statewide because we know it's a state well, it's a nationwide problem, but our state for sure is seeing it across the board. So, I mean that makes perfect sense to me that you know if you might have one kind of center in downtown Denver that you know maybe doesn't need a mobile unit or whatever, and that's not going to work in a rural area, right? You've got to have uh, some transportation uh, issues or other other resources for it to work.
2: Those are excellent points, and one of the things that we have worked on, and we'll have to now continue this year working on that. Number one, the pieces that you hit on. This is absolutely the worst around the the um, you know Alamosa, mm-hmm. and the More rural well. areas out there, Pueblo. The absolute worst. They are so, sh- everyone is so short-staffed and they have, they do not have enough professionals and addiction um, uh, professionals to do this, the doctors, the psychs, the um, certified addiction counselors because they're, they come in different levels, one, two, and three. You really need two and three for the certified addiction counselors, the mm-hmm, levels. Mm-hmm. They don't have any in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about transportation. Well, maybe they don't even have a detox center out there.
1: Right.
2: So where do they drive the people to, and how do they get them there? Do they take an officer off the street to drive wow. two hours?
1: Right, right. And
2: then two hours back? It's a huge issue. Yeah. So that's a really good point that you bring up, and it is something we're going to address in this next session. One of the things that we were able to do, I um, co-sponsored, co-primed, um, getting this interim committee, <clears throat> and they're hard to get. Interim committees are hard to get.
0: So what, what exactly is that? The
2: interim committee, <clears throat> excuse me, is going to bring all of these pieces together in a room with all of the professionals and the experts. How do we get our arms around this? And that will be part of the discussion. We do not have enough people in this field. So what does government do about that? I don't know. I don't know. That's how what the committee's enti-
1: for, right? How do we <laughs> entice
2: them? Yeah. You know, is there a loan forgiveness program mm-hmm. that if you work in this rural area for five years, I mean, I don't know, I'm right. throwing things out there, but there's so many pieces to this that we've formed an interim committee and we started meeting um, just this last week. I believe it was, my weeks go together. I know, uh, yeah. it's summer. <laughs> yeah. And so we're going to start taking these pieces apart. What can we do as a state?
1: Now, so... I don't even know how to verbalize this question, but you know, it, we talk a lot about serving constituents, and in this case, I feel like there's a there's a an urge to leave the addicted population out of the conversation. How are you going to deal? How are you going to say? You know, go to the people and say, what ca- how can we fix this for you? What do you need that we're not providing?
2: Well, you will be amazed. Um, you would be amazed at the people in the room. Uh, one of the persons we have is the wonderful director at the Re- Harm Reduction Center, which is actually across the street from the Capitol. Oh. That's where they do the needle exchange program. Okay. And people go, are you kidding me? Needle exchange? Well, yeah, because you have a real high risk of Hep C, horrible. Past um, diseases, AIDS, all of the stuff that was going on. If you don't do that, and guess what? Many times when they've been in there, and then they've been in there, and been, they're like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, it's and a we good can touch get point. them into treatment.
1: It's a touch. So point. we
2: hear straight from the people that are that are doing this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think one of the biggest things I found throughout my years, and one of the reasons I don't always vote the way certain groups of people expect me to vote. When an issue comes in, and I don't know about it, are you kidding me? I was a single mom raising three kids I have a house cleaning company, come on. So when I hear about the specific issue, it could be about plumbing, could be electrical, could be about the addictions, could be about anything. I'm not the expert. So I go out of the building, I listen to both sides in the building and then I go outside of the building and I meet with people okay, this is what they're saying, this is what the legislation does, how will it affect you? Yeah. And how would we fix this? Because if they're in the middle of it, they're in the trenches, they can tell you how to fix the issue. So yeah. do, you,
1: do you find that when you go outside, by the building, I believe you mean the Capitol building, yes. so when you go outside the building and talk to experts, do you typically find that there's a consensus? And when there isn't, then do you look at data yourself? Or like, how do you navigate that?
2: Um, That's another really good point. So generally, generally, there are certain issues that are just not gonna be touchable on either side ever. And we know that. Generally, and I would say 95, 96, 97% of the time, people agree on what the outcome should look like. Mm. It's how you get there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why you bring, when I have had the hardest issues, like the hours that we were requiring for our nurse practitioners to do, to be able to prescribe, the APRNs, um, it was how you get there that was the big deal. So I had to bring everybody to the table, which is what I do on my legislation, kicking and screaming, loving it, hating it, get everybody into the room because we can agree this is the problem. And just keep now, coming back to that. Now do we fix it? Right, just keep coming that back to That was a really outcome. big piece of legislation. Colorado could not compete when it came to the um, uh, APRNs and mm-hmm. them being able to prescribe and take on a little more duty for the nursing, for nurses. And the hours that they were required to go through to get the APRN was like 4,000. No other state in the country had that. And it's because Colorado was really the first to allow that anyway, so we didn't know what it was. Is it a thousand hours? Is it 12,000? Is it 8,000? So we settled at four. Well, we could no longer compete in the country. Uh. So people would get their license and then move to Wyoming, Oklahoma, Texas, Hmm. you know, wherever, because
0: they didn't have to do as many hours.
2: And it wasn't (laughs) necessary to do that many hours, we found Mm -hmm. through a lot of research. Mm -hmm. And so we brought it down to a thousand. And oh, some people were just kicking and screaming. Oh, that's more competition for you. And I get that, but we need to take care of healthcare. We have a shortage of professionals and this is one way we can take care of and keep the people that are going to school in our state, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. keep them here working. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: That's a really good point. I mean, especially living in Colorado, like who wouldn't want to stay here? Most people right. do. So So all
2: legislation, a lot of tough legislation is like that, and if you will just bring everybody into the room, and don't be afraid of people that say, I hate this, that's okay, because you know what, they have probably got some good points of, okay, maybe that wouldn't have worked, but Mm -hmm. what would? Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I think that I've been successful, and 100% of all of my legislation in 15 years has been bipartisan.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. 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 That's incredible. So, so what is uh, I mean, we're like, we're pushing near an hour here. What do you, what's this, what, what does it look like after you're done? Well, we talked about that. You're going, you'd like to get involved, but will you, looking back on this whole experience, give us just a few takeaways.
2: Well, first I will say that it has been a privilege of a lifetime. And every single day I walk into that Capitol, I am privileged to be there to serve the citizens in my district and the state of Colorado. And I don't think you should ever, ever lose sight of that. It's a privilege. Um, I kind of am not a real partisan person. And so- You're kidding. That that has been difficult for me. Mm. I really believe in policy and what's good for just the people in the state of Colorado. Um, No, I don't have any intention on running Again, I love the policy, I love the issues, I would love to do something in governmental relations because I think I'm really good at that. Governmental relations. Can Meaning, you give us some examples? Yeah. Um, for a company saying, okay, you know what? This is the problem. Perhaps this is how we fix it. How do we bring people together and do we need legislation? What would that look like? Um, and are you crazy? That is so not going to go anywhere. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And having the feel for that, I can tell my side now, oh, yeah, don't go there. That right. is so not going to go anywhere. It's not going to work. Yeah. But how do you do all of those things? And many companies need, as you can imagine, um, everyone has governmental relations people, because, you know, this is a problem. What are we going to do? Yeah. And does it take any of the government to help fix that? It doesn't always take the government, to cry out loud, to fix that. But, um, I don't plan on running. I'm just not um, to be honest with you, not sure that I could get elected on my side in a primary. Um, I went through one primary. it was very tough, and obviously I won, but um, I'm just more for policy mm-hmm. and um, I have very strong uh, democratic values on many things
1: mm-hmm.
2: but I'm also very moderate and I'm also a small business so I'm a business owner, mm-hmm. so I have that perspective, yeah. So
1: so um, if you don't mind one last question, we, we like to ask most of our podcast guests at the end, um, you know, so, sort of for one takeaway, one thing that if all of our listeners could know one thing or do one thing that would make either your job easier or just something that as a citizen, you say, gosh, if everybody knew this, if everybody do this, we'd be in a better place. What would that be? Absolutely. Hands down. Every single
2: person in the state of Colorado should know their state representative and their state senator, and they should be calling them. They should be emailing them. They should be sitting down to coffee with them because they are real people. Mm -hmm. They are not special people. Mm
1: -hmm. They
2: are everyday people and they need to hear from the citizens that live in their districts or even just the state, but especially in my districts. People will call and ask me if I can have a cup of coffee all the time. It is the state where so many of these big decisions are being made, and unfortunately, I think people pay almost all attention to the national level when really there is so much they should be involved in in the state. That affects their everyday Absolutely, lives. Yeah. and every single citizen should be they should have a, a relationship with their legislator, whether it's an email, a letter, I still take letters, um, a phone call, coffee, yeah, whatever it is. They have a voice and by dang, they should make sure that it's being heard, especially in their districts.
1: Amen sister, yeah. what a great way I, to end. I think that's
0: a great way to end. And I think that that is basically the mission of Civic Syrup is that people should get involved. It doesn't matter what level. It just and that it's not that matter. hard. It it's takes five hard. minutes
1: to look up your senator, your state senator, and your state representative and just give them a call and say, hey, I don't know you, but I want to. Really one thing very, very quick is to make sure that you're not basing your
2: opinions on a soundbite. Mm.
1: Yeah. What
2: sounds good or sounds awful is a soundbite. What does the legislation actually say? Mm. And that's where I sometimes get into trouble because I read it and go, okay, it may sound really good over here, but I got to tell you, this is what it's going to do. And you don't want to go there. Oh, yeah. So don't vote. Right. Citizens shouldn't vote and make an opinion based on something they just heard.
1: Yeah. Well, and when I first even started looking at at state legislation, you can go on the the Colorado Assembly website and look up bills and read them yourself. Absolutely. And uh, it, it was really interesting to look at a bill's title.
0: And then actually read
1: the bill. That's and right. sometimes you would find that the two were barely even related. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Very interesting.
0: It's like it's like the catchy headline, you know? The like, devil's
1: in the details. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: it is. It yeah. absolutely is. Well, thank you so much for coming well, on it today. It was an honor. Thank you so much wonderful. for thinking. Thank you, Senator Jean. Yeah. We Thanks really thinking appreciate thinking. it. And
1: best of luck to you in your final year of uh, of legislation. I hope you go out with with a bang and lots of success.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I think yeah. you have already. You have already. A lot right? of success. It'd be frosting yeah. on Enjoyed the cake. It. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it would Some be. It's a great learning experience. All right, everyone, this is Civic Syrup. Check us out, civicsyrup.com. This podcast will be up, again, for your reference. It's July 19th, um, in case it takes us a little bit to get this up, 2017. Yeah. All right, everyone, thanks so much.